Welcome to the Bridge Podcast. Smoking weed or having sex. 
I go to bed just fine. Because my job is simply just to do this. Here's the truth. Do with it what you want. And as long as I feel like I faithfully have conveyed the truth to you, what you do with that truth is totally up to you. So I want you to know you're in control of your life. We're just giving you the truth, what God would say about it. And what I want you to know more than anything else is when I communicate, no matter the topic, whether it be this or any other topic, I want you to know two things from me to you. Ready? Number one, that I simply care and love you. Right? Even if you go, I don't really know you. If we knew each other, I'd know this would be true. I care and I love about you. And number two, here's the truth from God's word. Do with it what you want. That's it. That's all I do. Okay? So just know that. So then what is my motivation? If it's not to control you, if it's not to like be, you know, draw a hard line and be super legalistic and in your face, what is my motivation? My motivation simply is this, to save you from pain. That's it. With this topic in particular, it's to save you from pain. I've had way too many friends, way too many friends who've made choices in the dating slash sex slash marriage portion of their life that has caused tremendous amounts of pain. I've had way too many students who have made choices in this area of their life that have caused themselves tremendous amount of pain. I myself have made choices in this area of my life that have caused me tremendous amounts of pain. My desire is solely to save you from pain. This is an incredibly important part of your life. In fact, let me make a bold kind of statement here. Outside of your salvation, in terms of what you do with Jesus, right? That's that's the number one choice of your life. What do you do about Jesus? Jesus said in the scriptures, who do you say I am? Most important question. What do you do with Jesus? That's the most important decision of your life. But outside of that decision, the second most important decision of your life, I believe, is who you date, who you marry, who you sleep with. It's the second most important decision of your life because it just has ripple effects throughout your life. Some of you who have watched marriages fall apart, maybe from real close proximity, know that a wrong choice in this area has consequences that just keep rippling out. Why is this area so important? I want to give you a principle. It'll be on the screen. Here's the principle. Ready? It says this, your present, is it up there? Yeah, your present will become your past that you will one day carry into your future. This might sound confusing. Bear with me. You have a present today, just right now. You're making choices today. This is your present. However, at some point, your present becomes your past. Now the present's over there. You're in the future, right? Your present becomes your past. And what we always assume, this is what we always assume, is the choices that I make in the present will one day be the past, and the past is the past. I get to just leave the past in the past. That's what you assume. That's what I assume. That's what everyone assumes. I just get to leave the past in the past. Let me tell you, it is not true. Your past sticks with you and carries through to your future. It's just the way it is. This is such a hugely important area because I have seen friends make choices in their present, and that present eventually became their past, and that past followed them into their future, and it wreaked havoc on their lives. I'm trying to save you from pain. Why is this outside of salvation the most important decision? Like what you do sexually, like with your life and who you marry and what you date and all that kind of stuff. Like why is this the most important? Because the Bible is pretty clear that it is. 
So let me tell you what I know. Like, and I think you believe this and I believe this. I think we can all agree to this. Like, we would all say this right now, right? Like, God doesn't see levels to sin. Everyone agree to that? Like, all sin is the same in God's eyes. Like, we've all kind of, maybe if you've been around church long enough, you've never been around church, you've never heard this before, so I'm telling you something new. But if you've been around church long enough, there's this thing that we believe, and I do believe it, and, and that is all sin is the same in God's eyes. You break one law, you break all, you broke all laws, it's all the same. And that's a beautiful thing to believe and to know, because what that means is in this room, there's literally not one of us that is any better than any other one of us. We're all the same. So if somebody in here has made some sexual choices and you know about it, first of all, get out of their business. Second of all, if you're gossiping about their sexual choices, you're just as bad, right? We can all agree to that. All sin's exactly the same in God's eyes. It's true. But while all sin is exactly the same, listen, some sin carries greater consequences. It's not to say that God thinks it's worse. Hear me. It's not to say that God thinks it's worse. It's just the nature of the sin itself carries greater consequences. Listen, y'all know this is true. Even without me explaining it, you know this isn't true. And in fact, you're already a believer in this principle that while all laws should be followed, some broken laws require stiffer consequences than others. If you rob a home, that's a serious crime. Right? You're going to get serious consequences for robbing a home. I've never done it. That you know of, right? Okay, I mean, I, I've never robbed a home, but you get serious consequences. However, if you murder somebody, that's also a serious crime, and they're going to be more serious consequences. Both are big-time breaking of the law. We're not talking about a traffic ticket. These are both felony offenses, punishable by prison time, correct? We're all on the same page, except you would say we should not punish somebody who robbed a home as much as we punish somebody who murdered somebody. You would agree, right? But wait a second. These are both felony offenses. This is the same level crime, exactly. But one outweighs the other. The consequences should be greater. Listen, when you sin anyway, in any shape or form, God goes as disobedience. He sees it all the same. However, what the Bible says is this, is that sexual sin has longer lasting, more impactful, greater consequences. If you don't believe me, look at this. And we're going to come back to this verse so many times tonight. Okay. 1 Corinthians 6.18. I'm just going to read the first part and then we'll pause on it. Flee from sexual immorality. It's a really simple phrase. First he says flee, run, get the heck out. He doesn't say get as close to sexual immorality as you can. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, notice this, because there's times in the Bible where they do say this. Ready? He doesn't say Stand firm. Stand firm against sexual immorality. Stay where you are and be strong. No. Paul says, uh-uh, run. Run. He doesn't say get as close to it as you can. See how far you have self-control. See how far you can be tempted before you finally give it. Mm-mm. He says run, and then he says flee from sexual morality. We'll get into this in future weeks. This is more of a later week topic, but I will tell you, just so you know, the sexual morality is a vague term, but to the Bible, to the Bible audience, people that are reading this, they knew exactly what it meant. It was any type of sexual activity outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. Period. So we can lump a whole lot of activity under that umbrella, right? 
He says, run from sexual immorality, any sex outside of a marriage context. Run from it. Why? Well, here's why. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body. Imagine this. You're talking to me, and I lie to you. It's a sin. Notice that he says, all other sins, except for all other sins. So when I lie to you, it's almost like the sin is, it's almost like a directional arrow. Directionally, my sin's going that way to you, I'm lying to you. If I'm selfish, I go home tonight, I'm selfish. You know, I just ticked off, mad, and upset, and I, I don't care for my kids or my wife like I should. That's selfishness. You know what? It's going outward. It's towards them. If I gossip, that's outward. If I steal, that's outward. I'm hurting you. I'm taking something from you. It's an outward directional error. Since, look, all other sins that you can think of are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Here's what Paul says. Sexual sin's different. It's just different. It's outward, but it's also going right back. It's inward. And come on. Hey, listen. Let's all agree, right? We know this is true. We know this is true. You don't even have to believe in God or the Bible to know this is true. Why is it that if you're dating somebody, and you've seen this before, you're dating somebody, and let's say there is no sex happening. You're just dating. You break up, and you're like, oh, that hurts. You know, I'm sad, whatever. Why is it that the breakup is way worse when there's sex involved? And why would you go, oh, man, my heart is breaking. Well, your heart's part of your body. You're sitting towards your own self. Or why is it that sexual images so lodge in your mind and you can't get rid of them? Maybe you don't know that yet, but that's a reality that sexual images or memories lodge in your mind and you can't get rid of them even when you want to because you're with somebody else that's still there. Why is it that you go, oh, I wish I could get this out of my mind? It's because you were doing something against your own self. Or, sadly enough, there's sometimes that people make choices that lead to certain illnesses because of this. This is an arrow pointing back at us. What he's saying is this. Look, you're right. Hear me. Hey, listen, you're totally right. Sexual sin is no worse than any other sin. I mean, in theory, you're, you're right. However, it does carry greater consequences. Longer lasting. What's my motivation to talk about this? Is it to make you feel guilty? I think you'll know by the end of this that's not my motivation. Because I think you're going to see it. We get to the end of this. My motivation is not to make you feel guilty. We're going to end every week on hope. We are never going to condemn or be legalistic Pharisees in this room. As long as I'm in this room, we will not do that. We'll talk honestly, but we're going to give grace. My motivation is not to make you feel bad. My motivation is to hopefully, wherever you are, whether you've done this or that or whatever in between, my motivation is ultimately to give you truth to make you go, oh, and save you from future pain. Why? Because your present eventually becomes your past and your past follows you into your future. I just want to save you from some pain. So here's what I want to do. Okay, for the next remaining however many minutes, about 15, 20 minutes, I want to talk, and this is going to be kind of fun, maybe for me, <laughs> it's going to be fun for me. I want to talk about the six myths that you believe about sex. Somewhere in these six myths is something that you believe. Now, if you remember last series, 
Don't put them up yet. Just leave it on that. That's good. If you remember last series, I talked about who am I, and here's what I said. Whatever you believe about yourself, I believe this about me, that leads to actions which lead to consequences which lead to reality. Right? Your thoughts on you lead you to live a certain way. Sex is no different. This is a blueprint you could use in any area of your life. What you believe about sex will ultimately lead you to actions towards or far away from sex. It's going to lead you to actions which always lead to consequences which ultimately lead to the reality of your life. So if you believe any of these six things to be true, about four of them are totally stupid, and I'm just going to tell you that they're just totally dumb, but the last two are super detrimental. If you believe any of these things to be true, I promise you this, you have a warped and messed up view of sex. We need to wipe the board clean and put truth where you believe love. So here's the six myths. Ready? This is an intro sermon. Six myths about sex. Number one is this. It's no big deal. It's just a physical act. Right? It's no big deal. It's no big deal. What's the big deal? Why does this guy spend this much time talking about it? It's a physical act. Surely you have heard this. You've heard this, and maybe to a degree, you've probably been like, yeah, I kind of believe it, right? This is a very common myth. Our world, our culture will tell you, hey, this is no big deal. Why is it no big deal? It's just a physical act. It's just a physical act. Let's bring it down line by line, because God says it actually is a big deal. We just read that in 1 Corinthians 6. He says it's actually a really big deal. So what are they talking about here when they say it's no big deal? Let's just look at that first line. It's no big deal. First of all, let me say this. I can totally understand why you would believe it's no big deal. Really? Totally understand. You want to know why? Because we're saturated with it. And when we get saturated with anything, we think that thing is no big deal. I'll give you a classic example. Give you two examples. In 2003, most of you were too little to even remember this, right? Y'all are like toddlers, maybe, in 2003. In 2003, we had this huge event in the world. 2003, while you were a toddler, I was graduating high school because I'm super old. All right, so 2003, I'm graduating high school. The war in Iraq breaks out. It was a pivotal moment in my life. I almost went to war. I almost signed up. My mom talked me out of it last minute, and I went to college instead. But I was like gung-ho to do this. We went to war in Iraq in 2003. It was everywhere. When you turned on the TV, when you, I mean, we didn't really do, I mean, the internet existed, but no one really got on it back then. But like when you were on the computer, when you were on, you know, watching TV, if you opened up a newspaper, it was everywhere. Every time a plane took off, shots of missiles firing off of boats, you know, shots of soldiers running into cities with smoke coming out over them. I mean, it was everywhere. And every night you would hear news reporters say another bloody day in Iraq. Five soldiers died. And the next night, it's another terrible day in Iraq. 18 soldiers died, bringing the total death count to 23. I mean, it was just constant. It was all around us. Now, here's the crazy thing. That war went from 2003 to 2011. It's eight years. You know what happened about a year after that war started? We never heard about it again. You know what's crazy about that? There were still people dying. 
there was still, it was still a total disaster. It was awful. It was hell on earth for those Americans who are over there fighting. We don't talk about it anymore. Why? Because for one year, for this huge chunk, we just got saturated with something. And when you get saturated with something, you begin to think it's no big deal. You've already lived through this reality. COVID is this way. Do you remember when COVID broke? Right? I mean, it was all the time. COVID, 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 number, number, number. I mean, one person got it in Wichita Falls and the whole town goes berserk mode and everyone is like fighting, fist fighting over toilet paper, which will do nothing for you in COVID, right? But we just go nuts. Now we're like, well, you know, we, we know what it is. We're not really thinking about it or talking about it as much. Why? When you get saturated, you stop, it's no big deal. It's just the constant hum that runs behind the scenes. This is the way sex is. This is the way sex is. Our culture has so saturated you with sex that you think sex is no big deal because it's so constant and prevalent in your life. Mine too. Advertising. Advertising knows. Anybody advertising major in your... Anybody? Okay, you're going to peddle this stuff at some point. Maybe maybe you'll be better. But here's the deal. like Advertising sells the least sexiest thing in the world with sex. You know, Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper is not a sexy drink. It's not like, hey, baby, you know, let's grab a Dr. Pepper. You know, it's like, what? You're supposed to say, like, wine or something. I don't know. I don't, you know, whatever. But they'll be like, oh, in this ad, let's have a guy, and then let's have a really scantily clad woman come through. Like, drink Dr. Pepper, attract models. Right? I don't know. I don't know what that says to you, but it says this. Ultimately, we know that if we can just put sex in front of you, you'll buy our product. Okay? It goes more than that, though. Movies. Movies have sex in them all the time. Now it's like movies that don't even really need sex add sex. In fact, if you go to an animated movie and you take your kids to it, there are sexual innuendos tucked in lines that are for mom and dad to laugh at that fly over your kid's head. It drives me crazy because I'm sitting here with a five-year-old and I'm like, can we really leave the sex jokes out of my kid's movie, please? Because someday they're going to know and be like, that is dirty. Like, why did they do it, right? They add it everywhere. In fact, I was reading a quote of a movie producer guy who just produced a movie not that long ago, and he said this about the movie. The sex scene was not essential to the plot. However, the sex scene sold tickets. And you're like, what movie was that? Like, where, where is this sex scene? Like, I want to go check this out, right? I'm not telling you, but here's the deal. He's going, I know a sex scene gets people in the seats. It has no difference to the plot. That's movies. TV. TV is saturated with sex. I started looking at, like, what, what's my favorite show? And then I went back, like, a long time ago. You might not even know about the show. In the 1950s, there was a show called I Love Lucy. It was the show, Okay. You might have seen reruns of it. I Love Lucy was a funny show. It still is a funny show. You can watch it. It's funny. Here's the deal. I Love Lucy centered around a couple, Ricky and Lucy. They loved each other. They were married. And clearly they were having sex because Lucy got pregnant at some point. She was having sex with somebody, right? So this is a married couple who loves one another. And yet when the camera went into their bedroom, what did they have? Separate beds. In the 50s, we were so concerned about putting sex on TV that a married couple who's having sex and loves one another, we say, don't put them in the same bed. Compare that to The Office. Does anybody like The Office? I love The Office. I've seen The Office probably all the way through three times. Now, here's what we would agree on if you like The Office. You would say, Tim, that's a clean show. That's a clean show. 
no sex in that. Off the top of my head, last night as I'm writing this, I thought of all these storylines, including Office and the Office and Sex. Where are they all? I'll just have to do it from memory. Oh, here they are. Angela cheats on her fiancé and her husband. Her husband cheats on her. Dwight sleeps with a a bridesmaid and then dumps her. Meredith is clearly a sex addict, flashing everybody. Michael sleeps with a married woman, knowingly married. And Michael sleeps with one of his employees' mom. That was off the top of my head. And you're like, well, Tim, but they they don't show anything. It's not dirty. What I'm saying is look at the difference. It used to be one way, and now it's like this is a central storyline. We're saturated with it. And when you get saturated with something, you begin to think it's no big deal. Your friends tell you it's no big deal. Culture tells you it's no big deal. You see it all the time. However, listen, we are not the measuring stick of what is and is not a big deal. We can determine something's not a big deal, but God says, actually, no. Remember, 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. It's a big deal. But let's think about the second part of it. Ready? It's no big deal. Why is it no big deal? Because it's just a physical act. It's just a physical act. It's like shaking hands. Shaking hands is a physical act. Right? Except we know that's not true. Come on. We all know that's not true. If it was true, then instead of shaking hands, right? I mean, if it's true, if it's just a physical act, oh, hey, how are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? Boom, here we go, right? That only happens in dirty movies. Listen, it's more than a physical act. We know it's more than a physical act. You don't even have to believe in God to know it's more than a physical act. How do I know it's more than a physical act? How do I know that, in fact, it can be awesome? By the way, the most destructive force in the world? Let's perform a thought experiment. Bobby, kind of clear your head. Ready? I want you to imagine a scenario, and you'd say, well, Tim, this scenario you're about to spell out for me is totally impossible. I agree. It's totally impossible. But for the sake of the experiment, we're going to say it's totally true. Imagine for five years, five, every man, woman, and child on earth, everyone, every human being, decides, agrees, and signs a pact. We are going to live by God's standards of sexuality as described in the Bible. We are going to flee from sexual immorality because that's an inward sin, and we're going to live according to that definition of sexual morality. No sex outside of a marriage covenant between a man and a woman for five years. And for five years, not only did everyone agree to do it, but for five years, nobody broke. We all held up to the pack. You'd say, well, tell us. I know it's impossible, but just imagine for a second. Five years. We all live according to God's word. What happens in those five years? What happens? If it's just a physical act, life shouldn't really change all that much. I put a list together. Here's what happens in five years if that happens. Ready? No more harassment. That's gone. It's totally gone. Because men that live by biblical sexuality would never talk or treat a woman that way. Gone. No more molestation. Done. It's gone. No more abuse. No more rape. It's gone. No more pornography. You say, well, what's the big deal about pornography? Here's the big deal about pornography. It so totally warps your mind to look at women as just objects, and it totally changes the way you treat women. It completely changes the way you think women want to be treated in intimate relationships. 
It twists you up. It's not real sexuality. Those are actors who are paid money and are usually hopelessly depressed. It's terrible. It's gone. Five years. No more child pornography. No more sexual slavery. By the way, when you get rid of those pornography and child pornography, sexual slavery, the market practically dries up. It's a huge driving force of it. No more unplanned pregnancy. And you go, well, I don't know. I mean, some married people would get pregnant and it wouldn't be a plan. Sure, but married people getting pregnant when it's not a part of the plan, at least there's two people figuring out how we're going to do this. Consequently, that goes away, or a large part of it goes away. Consequently, abortion rates plummet. I wouldn't say they go to zero, but they plummet. No more STDs, no more adultery. Some of you lived through the pain of adultery, but here's the really important list. No more guilt, no more shame, no more heartbreak, no more bad memories, no more insecurity, no more pressure, no more pain. Five years, if in five years all we did was live according to what God said, look at how the world would be different. Argue with this list with me if you want. I think I would win. This totally changes the world if we just obey God's law. And we say it's just a physical act. Sex and sexual sin is responsible for every single one of those things on this. It's not a physical act. Yes, it is a physical act. However, it's way more than a physical act. It's a deeply emotional, deeply spiritual action. God, the inventor of this, knew it when he invented it, which is why he said this. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. It's not just a physical act. And we know that. So let's take that myth out of our head and throw it away for the garbage that it is. Right? It's garbage. It is a big deal. We know it's a big deal. God said it's a big deal. And it's more than a physical act. Myth two. We'll do these quick. Ready? Myth two. I need sex to live. I'm going to die if I don't have sex. Okay? All right. Let me tell you, um, in the history of the world, there has never been a case of somebody who died from not having sex. You need... Um, if that was the case, by the way, there'd be a lot of people in here dead. hey All right, so um, you don't need sex to live. You need air, water, food, shelter. You're going to be fine, okay? You don't need sex to live. Myth to destroy. Myth three, ready? Sex is for people who love one another. We love one another. Oh, I get this one big time. I get it because I've counseled people who are thinking uh, I'm going to counsel a guy who's thinking I'm with this girl. We're going to get married or they're kind of in that. Maybe we're about to get engaged and they're like, but Tim, here's the deal. We love each other. And I mean, this one's going the distance. We're going to get married. We're going to get married because we love each other. So what's the big deal? I, I, I totally understand the logic. I'm not going to fault you for the logic. I get it. What you might not know is this. On average, the average person is in love somewhere between three to five times before they get married. That's the average person. Three to five times. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, I believe that because some of you fall in love at the drop of a hat. Right. Some of you do. A person can be across the room and y'all just have, you know, you're looking that direction. They look that direction. Your eyes barely touch. And you're like, I am in love. Uh, I am in love. And I'm talking about guys say this stuff too. I'm not just making, I'm not just saying girl. Oh my gosh, dude. I am in love. Listen, if you fall in love with the drop of a hat and sex is for people in love, 
do the math, right? It's not hard to figure this out. Listen, uh, sex for people in love. Okay, but if you're in love three to five times, what I'm saying is this. How do you know you got married? You call me up. You schedule a date. I meet you and the other person. We stand right here. You look into each other's eyes. I say, do you? Do you? You say, I do. And you go to a hotel and you have fun. That's how you know you got married. That's how you know. That's when it happens. Before that day comes, you have it that you don't know for a fact. You never really know. See what I'm saying? Sex is not just for people in love. According to the Bible, sex is for people who are married. Why? The designer of sex knows these things about us. He knows these things. Okay? Number four. I have to have sex. I have to see if I am sexually compatible with this person. This one I have heard a lot. Tim, I got to, you know, I don't know, man. If we're going to get married, we need to be sexually compatible. So, you know, it's like a test drive, you know? Yeah, it's like a test drive. I didn't see. Are we sexually compatible here? Okay. This is really simple. It's really simple to blow out the water. It's all just going to get awkward. Gentlemen, if you have the part of your body that makes you a man, ladies, if you have the part of the body that makes you female, congratulations, you're sexually compatible. hey Simple biology class. Simple biology. Okay, it's real simple. You're sexually compatible. And you go, but hold on, but wait, you know, in the bedroom, like, da 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 I don't know, like, are we going to be compatible? Listen, if you get married, you have your whole life to practice. Have fun. You'll get real compatible. I promise. You'll get super compatible. I promise. It'll happen. You're compatible. Okay? But I'm telling you, this is the stuff that we fill our heads with. That we think it's reasonable. Come on. Look at it with half an ounce of honesty in your mind, and you'll know it's not reasonable. But here's where we get to the last two, and the last two are super detrimental. God hates sex. Number five, God hates sex. Another way to say this would be God wants to ruin my fun. This lie has been around since the very beginning. Satan with Eve. He said, don't you know that he's just holding something good out? He's just trying to ruin your fun. God hates sex. God's just trying to ruin my fun. This is one of the most detrimental myths. God does not hate sex. God invented it. Notice again, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Ready? Flee from sexual immorality. He does not say flee from sex. He says flee from sex that causes you pain. Flee from sex that kills your soul. That's what God cares about. He's not asking you to flee from sex or that sex is wrong or dirty. He invented it. In fact, the first sexual encounter in the Bible, God made that sexual encounter happen. It's Genesis 1.28. Look at this. He just created Adam and Eve. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God's first two commands to humanity. Ready? Number one, have sex. Number two, rule the earth. If I'm Adam that day, I'm like, this dude is awesome. <laughs> like, have sex, one. Yeah, that's first. Have sex, great. And two was rule the earth. Got it. Cool. Great day. All right. That's a good God. It's not like God left the garden and came back later on and was like, what on earth did y'all do? He knew what was going to happen. He designed it. Listen, biologically, he made this work out. He designed it the way it is. 
It has an, a benefit. It creates life. We're all products of it. Two people got together, had sex, and you exist. So biologically it works. It creates new life. But if you chase that idea out all the way that God created sex, what that means is this, is that God created sex to be pleasurable. That's not an invention of humanity. God invented sex to be pleasurable. That was a gift from God to you. As the designer and creator of it, he knows it can be used correctly or incorrectly. And if it's used incorrectly, it hurts. Listen, the first guy who put together a microwave as the inventor to sell to homes, I'm sure in that first warning, he was very clear. Don't put a fork in it. Don't put metal in there. You're going to be tempted to put metal in this. Don't. It blows up. I'm the inventor. I'm the creator. I know what will happen if you do this. It will cause harm to your house. Don't do it. It's no different when God creates sex and he goes, look, I know it so much more intimately than you. I designed it. In fact, what happens in sex, y'all are just now starting to figure out. The science wasn't there a long time ago. You're just now starting to figure out what happens into your brain and how you form neural pathways and how you form connections with people. You're just now starting to understand it. I've known about it from the very beginning. I know how powerful it is. And I know how if you misuse it, it blows up in your face and it harms you. I don't want to ruin your fun. I want to keep you from pain. In fact, John 10, 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. It's Satanite's idea to create rape and harassment and molestation and slavery and shame and guilt. That's all Satan. He's having a field day. He's having great fun. God's like, but look, I came to give life and life abundantly. All parts. God doesn't hate sex. God hates pain. He hates you killing yourself. That's what he hates. And the last one is a really detrimental one, and that is this. Number six. I've gone too far, and now I'm broken. I might as well not try moving forward. I've already made that mistake in my past. There's no point in me trying in the future. I'm just going to give up and just go through the motions the rest of my life and just give in. Already gone too far. Some people feel this way, and some people would say this about themselves. Here's what I want to do. I want to give you one more thought experiment. I know I'm going a little bit long, but we had a lot of mist to cover. Here's what I want to do. I want to flip the seat with you for a second. I want to paint a scenario, and I want you to think that you're my pastor and I'm your student. But I'm still me. I go home tonight. This wouldn't be true. It's after 9 o'clock now. But I go home tonight. I say it's before 9, and I stop off at a liquor store and I buy vodka. I go home. Pour a big tumbler of it. Drink it. See, the problem is once I do that, it's too, it's too far gone for me. For me, one is too much, but a thousand is not enough. I can't stop once I've started. That's the whole problem. So I go off the deep end, and I just go off the deep end, Right? Because that's what would happen if that happened tonight. I'd go off the deep end. Very quickly, you'd hear about a lot of things happening in my life. My wife and my kids would leave. Who wants to live in that? My job would be lost. Let's say in a week, you see me. I've been on a week run, and I look terrible, and I look rough, and I look hungover, and I look miserable. You see me. What do you say to me? 
If I say to you, I've gone too far, now I am broken, I might as well not try anymore. What do you say to me? I know what you would say to me, because I think most of you care about me. Here's what you'd say. No, that's not true, Tim. You haven't gone too far. You still can be redeemed. You can still start over. You can turn back around. Listen, what was lost can be gained back again. It's not too late. Don't give up. God still loves you. Go back to him. I'll help you any way I can. You would do everything you can to convince me that that was a lie. Right? I know you would. Why is it if the situation was flipped and you're helping me, why is it you would know that that's a lie in my head, but you can't see that that's a lie in your head? Don't talk to yourself this way. and Don't allow anyone else to talk to you this way. It is never too late to stop and say enough's enough and turn and go the opposite direction. No one ever gets to the point of being unredeemable until they stop breathing. There's always hope. There's a story in John chapter 8. I'm finishing with this. Jesus is in the temple court. John 8, you can read this story. A bunch of religious men bring in a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. That is sexual immorality. She's caught in the act. She's probably half clothed. They throw her there. These are religious men. They have rocks in their hands. And they say to Jesus, Jesus, the law says that we can kill her by stoning her. What do you say? By the way, religious people always condemn people for their sexual mistakes. Religious people do. Jesus followers don't do it. If you find yourself straying into condemnation land, you look like a religious person. You don't look like a Jesus follower. Knock it off. But religious people always like to condemn people for their sexual sins. They say, what do you think, Jesus? Should we stone her? Now, this is the important question. Is at the heart of this. Has she gone too far? Can she be redeemed? And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know what? Go right ahead. Start throwing rocks. However, you who haven't sinned, you start throwing first. And then he bends down the sand and he starts drawing, writing. One by one, the religious leaders go, uh-oh, I can't stone somebody when I'm a sinful person. And they drop their rocks and they walk away. And Jesus is left with this woman. Now remember, hear me. Jesus said, he who is without sin can throw the first stone. And now it's just Jesus. He who is without sin and the woman. Jesus is totally right at this point to pick up a rock because he is without sin and throw it at her. And what does Jesus do? John 8, verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now look, go now and leave your life of sin. Here's what Jesus says. I don't condemn you. The myth floating around your head, man, I made these mistakes. I've watched too much stuff on the internet. I've gone too far with my girlfriend. Back in junior year of high school, I started doing this and that. I've gone too far. It's no use. Might as well just give up. Listen, Jesus would say, I don't condemn you. I don't. Come back. But there is a point of turning. You have to turn. Leave your life of sin. Not so you can earn my favor. No. 
Leave your life of sin because your life of sin is killing you. That's why you leave it. Because it's hurting you. Listen, God's got a grace. And for the rest of the series, we're going to talk about his standard. I'll never go this long again, I promise. But I had to get through all these myths. We're going to talk about his standard. We're going to talk about it in a way that is truthful, honest, but is always full of grace. So I want you to keep coming. And even if you're going, I don't know if I believe all this, and I don't even know if I'm willing to give up what I'm doing. That's fine. Keep coming. Because all I want to know is that you've heard that God loves you. We welcome you back. God can set you on a new course. Let's pray. Bye.